Aya is Tim here. And before I leave you to the podcast, just a quick note. Due to rights reasons, the songs have been shortened for this podcast. Every song is taken from U2's Songs of Surrender. All lyrics are written by Bono and The Edge. All music is composed by U2, who are Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. Credits reflect the reworked versions of the songs on Songs of Surrender, not the original versions. It was released on 17th of March on the labels Island and Interscope. Enjoy. Tim's listening party was a lockdown sensation. Unfortunately, it was on Twitter, which you can't listen to. But Absolute Radio has the solution. Tim Burgess explores seminal albums alongside the artists who brought them to life. Absolute Radio presents Tim's Listening Party with Tim Burgess. Hi, are you listening to Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio? It's Tim Burgess here, and I'm delighted to be bringing my world-famous listening party to Absolute Radio. Since that very first lockdown, we've played back over a thousand albums together hearing from the artists behind them in one collective experience and one great big listening party. Now it's my pleasure to bring these listening parties to Absolute Radio. So far, I've been joined by Fallout Boy and The Kinks for listening parties. And if you've missed any episodes so far, be sure to catch up. This episode, I'm joined by one of the most recognisable faces and names in music. A member of one of the biggest bands ever, U2, he's formed one of the most successful writing partnerships of all time. Alongside Bono, and is himself one of the great guitarists. A member of U2 for nearly 50 years, he has won 22 Grammys, more than any other band, and sold hundreds of millions of records, dominating the alternative rock scene for the past few decades. They've continued to sell out stadiums worldwide and a score of number ones. And their new album, Songs of Surrender, is no different. Another UK number one album. It comprises 40 songs re-recorded and reinterpreted from the group's incredible back catalogue. It's The Edge. Edge, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. Real pleasure to get this chance to to hang on, on air. I know, it's it's amazing. I've been looking forward to it for, for, for a long time, but um, I wanted to know... Songs of Surrender, we're talking about uh, Songs mm. of Surrender and the reimagining of, you know, classics. I'm wondering why now and how it came about. Well, the idea was around for a while and, you know, we're famously always busy with various things. So there wasn't really the chance to do it before. And then two things happened that kind of made it seem like this was the moment. One was Bono was doing his book. And he decided he was going to use song titles for the chapters. So there was a kind of a natural connection there that we thought might be interesting. And then the lockdown happened and it gave me the chance to really experiment and see whether this was going to work. So I kind of sat down with acoustic guitars and piano and just started recording ideas to see what would happen if we approached our songs from the completely opposite approach to what we normally would think of, which is... You know, standing on stage, making a, a racket to try and get to the back of a, a venue. This was like, how could we arrange them so it was as if Bono was singing in your ear? And so starting with that, and I have a similar vocal range, so I just try and do a quick demo and, and try and find the most minimal arrangement possible to support the voice. And the first experiments were really promising. So I started sending Bono tracks, and then we got together maybe a month later and he got to sing on a bunch of them and we all just went okay we're onto something here this is actually really working and some of the early songs the the ones that you'd least expect 
to yield to this kind of approach started to come together and really sounded great. Which was the first one that you did, uh, just out of interest? Well, I was trying to find some of the early songs that maybe had been a, overlooked, lost in the mix. Um, so the very first thing I did was a song called Dirty Day, which is very obscure. And then at another song that, that always bothered me because I don't think it fully come through was If God Will Send His Angels. So I did those two. I thought they represented both the sort of more obscure part of our catalogue and a, a great song of potential that maybe would benefit from this approach. And both sort of came through quite easily. And I thought, wow, okay. I mean, my band Charlatans did um, something. It was just like six tracks that reimagined, you know, with some, with some of our um, fan favourites. And, um, and it occurred to me that I was doing it because I wanted to do a cover version of, of, of our own songs. <laughs> and uh, because, yeah. um, you know, and maybe show people how to show people the way, maybe, you know, to, mm. to get into a, a song in a, in, a, in a unique way. Did that occur to you that you were kind of maybe doing cover versions of some of your own songs? Well, a couple of songs actually sounded too like that, so we, we didn't use them. Angel of Harlem, you know, when I did acoustic version of that, it was like, well, that's kind of Angel of Harlem. There's not really a twist. There's not really a, a new angle there. So we ended up sort of leaving that to one side. And a couple of songs... Like we thought about doing Running to Standstill, but again, that in it in its original form is almost in this guise. So we thought probably no point in doing that. So our rule of thumb was we wanted things to sound quite a departure, and the more of the departure, sort of almost the more we got excited. So with the song like Stories for Boys was totally reimagined. I mean, it's really a different song in in most ways. I want to come on to that later because. That, for me, is, is one that I keep returning to. But before we do that, let's hear the first track from Songs of Surrender. It's a classic. It's one. Did I disappoint you? Or leave a bad taste in your mouth? You act like you never had love And you want me to go without That was track number one, one, from U2, Songs of Surrender. Tim Burgess here with The Edge. On the theme of cover versions, you know, the first track, one, mm. an amazing opener. I mean, Johnny Cash's version is incredible. One, as a song, is one of the most, you know, amazing songs ever written. How do you go about rediscovering or, or dismantling something like that track? Yeah. Well, the very first version I did was really simple. It's just piano, the most simple version of the chord progression on piano. Like literally, how few notes can I play to express these chords? And then we lived with that for a while. It did sound really good, but we thought it was a little kind of monotone. So we recorded with some backing singers. We did this incredible choral version. And that seemed way too sort of heavy on the production. So and ended up, we, we sort of took the best of both worlds and yeah. there's a little kind of lift of, of the choral version, so two-thirds of the way through. And that was enough just to to give that simple version 
an element of difference. So, so that happened with a lot of songs. You'd you start off with the most skeletal version, and you just find little ways to to, to change it. And the the challenge with one, which you rightly point out, is one of those kind of sacred songs for us. Is was the vocal, and you know, Bono really was the centerpiece as a singer and a lyricist for for all of these arrangements. That was what I was trying to do: was serve the voice, and by serving the voice, serve the song. And uh, so with, when it came to one, there were various uh, vocal takes that, that Bono did. And the, the sort of fine line he was trying to get to was to avoid sentimentality and have a kind of the duality of that lyric, which if you, if you listen to the lyric of one, it's an argument. It's, it's quite intense and it's, there's a bitterness to it. And there's, there's a kind of uh, unresolved, uh, what sounds like a kind of family row um, and as we were writing the lyric back in the day you know we were we were thinking about a lot about what was going on in the AIDS um, pandemic so the the scenario that we kind of the secret um, deep structural scenario that we'd created was a conversation between a, a person suffering from AIDS who might be actually getting towards the end of their life so it was a gay person and a conversation with them and their father and that was the that was the kind of the what we had imagined so that lyric is is an intense lyric yeah. so not to let it get too bitter not to let it get sentimental but yeah. to hold that line between the two was really hard in 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 delivering the vocal and actually Johnny Cash was a bit of a touchstone yeah you know, because um and particularly his his version of of her the Nine Inch Nails song it was just like wow how he managed to deliver that lyric in that simple, direct way without being overly sentimental. And it, it has this power because of that. And someone has said recently to me about this, that, yeah, the most emotional film scenes are not the ones where somebody's crying, but it's the one where they try not to cry, you know, where they're holding back the emotion. Yeah. So that was what we were trying to do with that vocal. And it took a while, but I think... I think Bonner really nailed it. Well, of course, I mean, the emotion is within him anyway, you know, I mean, every all the emotions are in him anyway, so it's just a, a case of just It's holding to it back. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah. As you know, you know, Bono is like a personal fireworks display live in, in front of a big audience, but in this case, he had to really reel it back in, and that, I think, has been like the the secret success of this was, was Bono finding that way to, to not allow the emotion to overwhelm the the vocals it's a beautiful thing Edge it's time for track 2 from Songs of Surrender and it's another U2 classic this one originally from Joshua Tree where the streets have no name on Tim's Listening Party this is a whisper in the hurricane where the streets have no name where the streets have no name where the streets of no name We're still building them Burning down love We're burning down love That was you two with Where the Streets of No Name on Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. Tim Burgess here and I'm joined by The Edge to go through the band's new album, Songs of Surrender. And I guess we could go along the idea of, of cover versions again. Our Pet Shop Boys did a remarkable version of it and we all know that Neil Tennant has very good taste yeah I, I always loved the uh, the Pet Shop Boys because it, it simultaneously was I think a nod but it also took the 
out of the song in a great way. And I thought, that's right. We need to do that. We need to do it ourselves is, is be able to sort of present the work in its raw and you know authentic form but also there's a little it's necessary to have a bit of a wink from time to time about yourself and the work and not take it too seriously so that was a beautiful thing that they did and yeah where the streets of my name has been one of those amazing songs for us over the years um live particularly and when when i first started working on the music for that song i was i had it in my mind like what would i want to hear and see if I was at a, a show, not necessarily a YouTube show, but like a a show of one of my favorite bands. And and that was the, the, the genesis of it. In this version, you know, there's no guitar. It's where we stripped it right back. There's no drums. It's the most abstract, disconnected arrangement. And um, one of the inspirations for this was Elvis Costello did a version of whether she's on her name uh, with a, on acoustic guitar at, at an event and I was just gobsmacked because I'd ne- it never occurred to me that you could do that to this particular song I always thought it relied on the power of the band but it's one of the most successful reinterpretations for that reason it's so different and the the abstract quality I think sets up that lyric in a, in a very unique way I think it's amazing, you know, what people take from songs and then how they kind of interpret it. Um, you know, there's many cover ver- versions of many bands, you know, band songs. It must be fascinating, like you say, to to receive something back from something that you've given out, you know, or put out there. Uh, you know, those songs, they, they, they stop being your property after they've been released. They're sort of now they're yeah. owned by the public <laughs> and owned by your fans. So, yeah, um, it is... It's amazing to see how they they kind of end up being part of people's lives. Edge, this next song, Stories for Boys. Yeah. So what I found really fascinating, and why I keep going back to it on the album, is that, you know, we could say that, you know, these reimaginations, uh, you know, these, these reworkings of these songs are kind of quite a, 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 a mature, simplistic, and kind of like, um, you know, stripped back way of, of, of doing the songs. However, this song in particular, to me, you know, it just sounds so... You- Bono's voice just sounds so youthful. In, 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 in. Here's the funny thing. Okay. It's me singing. Oh, I had no yeah, idea. It, wow. Yeah, it's me singing that one. And the reason... I mean, I'm partly embarrassed, sounds, but partly... But, but I think this is brilliant. Yeah, we sound so alike. Like, I've, I end up taking the lead vocal on, like, four of the songs, and people don't know the difference between our voices, which I always had trouble with the Beatles. And it's I think when you're singers... Yeah. You grow up together you end up singing the same having a same tonality same inflections so you're not the only one by any means a lot of people haven't noticed wow (laughs) uh, well there you go yeah it's it's great great. we actually sound like a kid isn't it all the time anyway yeah i mean (laughs) by the way i take that as not i take that as a huge compliment clearly i mean bono is i think one of the great singers so if i can sound anyway you're one of the greatest singers as well (laughs) But anyway, yeah, so Stories for Boys. What happened there, of course, you know, that, that song was one of the first songs we ever wrote. It was on the first EP before we made the, the boy album. Um, but of course, we were like, we work boys. We yeah. Were like 17, 18 year olds when we wrote that song. Bono wrote that lyric from his perspective about what he was going through and the world around us at that time. So it would have felt quite odd for lads 
now in their <laughs> 60s to sing those lyrics straight up. So what we decided to do was write it as if we were talking about who we were back then. Yeah. So we used a lot of the same lines, but but a lot we changed to to change the perspective. So yeah. the theme is the same, yeah. but it's now we're writing from our position with that distance of time and experience to talk about who we were and what was going on. And that album, the Boy album, looking back, we weren't, we, we sort of knew it at the time, but to us it was just part of um, what we wanted to express. But one of the main themes of the Boy album was the idea of holding on to innocence and the idea of innocence and, and the boy. And that was quite quite sort of unusual in the context of rock and roll yeah. where you know most bands are trying to lose their innocence as quickly as possible and most songs are about you know making out in the backseat of a Cadillac or whatever the hell it is yeah, but, of course, of course. so Stories for Boys is that song that approaches the idea of like a nascent sexuality the sort of coming of age but also understanding that in moving into adulthood and moving away from childhood there's a there's a sort of trade off and that you know, trying to hold on to a little bit of the childlike characteristics as you yeah. enter this new phase. So I think it's beautiful, that balance in the lyric to sort of refer to that innocence from this distance. Um, it's it's hopeful. It's it really sounds like it, it really sounds like boys dreaming, you know, uh, it really, yeah. really comes across like that. And for that to come across in this in this version, I think is exceptional. Let's hear it that updated version from 1980s Stories for Boys. Like a TV show with everyone I've known In my imagination There is just static and flow Hello, hello That was Stories for Boys, the songs of Surrender version on Tim's Listening Party. I'm delighted to have The Edge with me going through the album. And the next track I chose is 11 O'Clock TikTok. And the right. reason, well, there's many reasons why, why, why I chose But firstly, I'm a big fan of Factory Records. And I know that you originally did the song with Martin Hannett. And I wondered what mm. that was like. But also, mm. that was my way in to you 2 in a lot of ways. And I love the song. And I've always loved it, you know, for however long it's been out. You know, without coming across this... Um, you know, a bit creepy. I mean, I think that this new version is better, even though I love Martin mm. Hannett. Yeah, well, that's lovely to hear. I, um, like you, huge fan of Martin Hannett's and Joy Divisions and everything, Factory Records. I mean, they were such a gift to a bunch of kids in Dublin who were trying to see if there was some way to take our music in a new and original direction. Yeah. Um, all, everything about what they were doing and the Manchester scene at that point was hugely important to us um, so with 11 o'clock TikTok you know one of the funny things working on these tunes you start to strip them back and you start to understand the essence of them musically and 11 o'clock TikTok has absolutely nothing to do with the sort of rock and roll tradition African American R&B music it's musically coming from some totally different place and I was like what what is this I was thinking and it's it's actually probably second hand but it's like an influence of German music yeah kind of Kurt Weill uh, cabaret 
you know, but it's also through through the filter of probably the Susie and the Banshees and Joy Division and a lot of the UK bands that sure. were similarly influenced. And sure. as as often happens, you know, ideas start bouncing around. This was our take on, you know, a new form of music that wasn't rock. Yeah. And using the echo as I did in the original version for one of the first recordings, and it was like the guitar part really sort of relied very much on the echo. And then rearranging it, where it's it's pushed more in that direction, we end up with kind of a few extra motifs. Um, I, I I just love that piece of music because it's so unique. It's so out of the conventions of of rock music and guitar-based music. I'm a huge fan, and and working with Martin was kind of an amazing experience. And we probably would have done the first album with Martin, but. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Ian passed away in Curtis from Joy Division, and and Martin couldn't continue the schedule of recording, so we ended up working with Steve for a couple of singles, and then that relationship sort of really blossomed, and so we ended up doing the album with Steve. But we loved working with Martin, and loved the result that Eleven O'clock TikTok. It's interesting song. that you talk about uh, the G- German influence. I was I was watching um, Michael Rotter. Uh, from uh, Noi talking about uh, you know recording by the by the river and they wanted to make the sound of water and I thought that was a, a really wonderful thing and um, I wanted to also mention to you even though it's probably off road a little bit um, your, your your solo EP with um, Holger Chukai and uh, yeah and uh, uh, Francis Kavorkian and um, yeah uh, uh, Jar Wobble Jar Wobble I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 I love that record and and especially. Uh, if you don't mind me saying, um, uh, hold on to your dreams, the Arthur Russell kind of thing. I'm obsessed with Arthur, and I, I was so great yeah. to be able to say that to you. Uh, well, thank you. That was that was a fun project. It was quite quite a sort of a furious few days to, <laughs> to try and record. And then I I was so busy with you two, I had to dart out, and and Francois sort of finished the project with Holger and Jackie and and Jao Wobble. But that I, was amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, they're not just musicians. You know, those guys were were real artists, and yeah, uh, it was a privilege to work with them. But I think that that kind of like comes through. You know, not you know, not many people would sort of maybe suggest that comes through, mm-hmm. but it does certainly in this song. I think. And, well, yeah, I mean, it was at that moment punk rock arrived. You know, and I see in U 2s life a few sort of movements and they're in punk rock terms it was what was happening post-punk um, yeah. so it was Echo and the Bunnymen and Teardrop Explodes and Wah Heat in the UK and then in the U- in the US it was Patti Smith and Television and um, Richard Hell and the Voidos Th- those are the bands that got us going but then later you know the Manchester scene that you were part of that was a huge kick up the arse for you two I think we we were like uh, trying to figure out like where the energy was in in the culture and what we wanted to do to expand our our repertoire as, as songwriters and performers and what you guys were doing, um, Charlatans and Stone Roses and um, Happy Mondays well, yeah, yeah. was a huge influence on particularly Acting Baby and you know I remember getting y- your song the only one I know on, on 12 inch yeah. and listening to that going oh my god cool groove these guys are really killing it so um, yeah 
So whatever influence we had on you guys, you definitely had on us. Well, thanks for the uh, the, the kick up the arse, which we definitely needed at that time. You oh, know, we, well, that's thanks, what's always thanks, great thanks about bands. Me. Before I get too overwhelmed, let's hear it from 11 o'clock TikTok. Seven o'clock TikTok on Tim's Listen Party on Absolute Radio. Tim Burgess here with The Edge talking about Songs of Surrender, the new album from U2 with 40 reworked classics. The next song I'd like to speak about is Beautiful Day. Mm. Michael Sipes said he wished he'd written this song. Um, how does it feel when people say that kind of thing? And I mean, it's always good when your peers sort of like say, you know, great things, but does it, does it matter to you in a lot, a great deal? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. My, Michael's a friend and, you know, he, he said the same to me. And I, I always was really chuffed to hear that coming from him. That's yeah. a huge compliment because, you know, he gets songwriting. And I think Beautiful Day is undoubtedly one of our most important songs. And I think, again, the reason is because of this thing of duality. You know, it's it's a song that contains both an incredibly positive message yeah. but it's being delivered by somebody who's clearly literally in a complete sort of meltdown crisis in their life and I think that communicates and people relate to that you know because we've all been there and yet yeah, to overcome that to actually in a defiant way to just go it's a beautiful day and just get get over that you know crisis and just acknowledge just to be alive is is a miracle in itself. That's a glorious so, song. Yeah, um, I, I think that's that song's got some powerful ideas in it and great, you know, great melodies and whatever. So that was a fun one to work on. More, one of the more difficult ones to get in the boat for the Songs of Surrender project because it it's actually, and this is a little bit inside baseball, but when you've got a song where the chords don't change very much, mm-hmm. you've got to find dynamic ways to to kind of add light and shade but if you don't have a band if you're just working with acoustic instruments dynamics become much more challenging so it took a little while to figure that one out we've been doing it live a couple of times Bonner and I've done a couple of things the piano room in the UK and we yeah. did uh, tiny desk in America and in both cases I think I think we did beautiful day in both cases but the simple acoustic guitar verse is now hanging together but on this version, we went more abstract yeah. and tried to find a sonic landscape that was kind of not too sweet. Uh-huh. So it had a little bit of tension yeah. under it, you know, and and threat to balance out the sweetness of of some of the, the melodic information. That's what it's all about, isn't it? It's like record making. You just got to have the yin and the yang. If, if it's too sweet, it's like sickly yeah but you you want a, a bit of ne- melody to keep the ear interested let's play that song it's beautiful day it's a beautiful day
you two, you know, came out of Ireland and, you know, a small, a small part of the world. And, you know, in, in America, everyone's kind of like fed the American dream. And it's, so it's kind of like a little bit, not easier to be a, the biggest band in the world if you're American. Well, kind of, but um, you know, it's imprinted in you, you know, um, I guess coming from Ireland and, you know, everyone looks into the stars and stuff like that. But did you feel like a, like a kind of like responsibility as you were becoming like the biggest band in the world to always remember Ireland and, and where you came from and, and bring that along with you? I think it's there in, in everything we do in, in a very kind of unconscious way. And then consciously from time to time, if there was a kind of opportunity to to do something significant for the homeland, we would absolutely do so. And you know, early on, we started Re Mother Records, which was one attempt to, to to help the kind of nascent music scene. So our the deals we did with all the bands were, you know, we we kind of licensed them for their work, but we never did long-term deals. So yeah. most record labels survive on the idea that they they do they tie everyone into like a four or five album deal and then one every out of every 10 groups like takes off so that pays for the the ones that don't but in our case we just literally wanted to give bands a a stepping stone to to get a record deal with another label and a lot of them did which was very nice to see so it's little things like that yeah. and um we're very grateful for what our country and what our city has given us because they've given us actually probably the most precious thing of all which is they've given us a life um, because I think had you two been based in LA these years or New York I think our our chance of regular life would have been completely blown out of the water but we still got the same friends we had when we were 15 um, all the all the people the principal people that work with us like you know our sound guy we've worked with them for 40 years you know so being the U2 thing is is very sort of family and it's very Dublin centric Ireland centric and that's worked hugely for us and yeah. uh, I think it's I think it's been good for the country as well I mean, I, I came from a very small town outside of Manchester, and I didn't even know that music existed. It certainly wasn't in, in, in my world. I was the only person who really liked music, uh, to be honest. And the idea that when New Order came along, for me, they, they were from mm. Macclesfield, so, and I grew up in, in Cheshire, and uh, mm. so, uh, some of the members of the band were from Salford, and that's where I was born. And, um, and I actually thought, oh, maybe I could be in a band, you know, maybe, you know, but no one from my town has ever been in a band before or had any success. And then I suppose when New Order had Blue Monday and it was, you know, a big club track in New York, I thought, oh, maybe there's a chance, maybe there's a chance, you know, and it, that was always a driving force. And I was just wondering what your, was, was there any kind of like people kind of before you that really gave you, you know, that driving force to make, make, to make you think it was possible? Yeah, we were kind of um, around when punk happened. We were really young, 15, yeah. 16. And then... Um, in the aftermath of punk, the first wave, we got very inspired when we saw the Pistols and the Jam on top of the Pops. But then we started going to clubs, and we were seeing like stiff little fingers from Belfast, yeah. and um, there was there was kind of a an immediate a huge raft of, of little garage bands that started in in Dublin in the aftermath of punk rock. So we definitely were part of that scene, yeah. and. 
really, I suppose it was between the jam and pistols and and probably even more the Ramones um, when we got their albums. We were like, we could play this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is simple. This is like, this is our, our level of sophistication musically. So that gave us a huge boost. And then in terms of Irish groups, obviously, you know, like you growing up in Dublin, it seemed like making an album was this unattainable goal. Yeah, yeah. But seeing Rory Gallagher, uh, who's like a blues guy, and then Lizzie um, doing well in the UK, that really was a huge encouragement to us. And I remember being young, like 13, 14, and like working out Rory Gallagher solos and um, when we first got together to, to basically do something on a Saturday afternoon when we were we were called feedback in those days when we were very young um, we were working Lizzie songs because these were the local heroes yeah so definitely that's great to those, hear. those those successes when they are local it does absolutely mean much more and it resonates when I was trying to be in a band I had a bass guitar and one day my mum brought home a big bag of bass guitar strings and said that they were Phil Linnett's guitar strings and uh wow. and it's i think it's things like that that you know kind of inspire you a little bit to, uh, to yeah you know, like, one of my friends is brian cox who's yeah. a physicist yeah who um was in the band with the keyboard player from lizzie oh wow that was his first his first band uh before he became an astrophysicist <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, he was saying it's a similar story. Like the keyboard player was famous in the little town that where he, he lived because he'd been in Lizzie. Yeah, and uh, Brian got the invite um, as a sixteen-year-old to come and play some synthesizers in his new group, and ended up joining the group. So um, yeah, there is the local scene, and those little encouragements, those connections, can really help. Yeah, it's fantastic. Did you use Linnet's Phil? Yeah, I did. Yeah, bass. on the bass. Yeah, Araya Pro bass. It was Araya A R I A. Yeah, but you know the band weren't very successful <laughs> at the time, and uh, and my bass playing kind of like stopped after that. But it was an encouragement to get me to the next step, you know, and all the, and all these yeah. and all these things are, you know, yeah. You two stuck in a moment you can't get out of on Tim's listening party. Edge, uh, you mentioned punk earlier. And I want to talk about a band in particular, the Ramones. Did the Ramones ever come to Dublin? Yeah. The Ramones played in Dublin, I think it was 1978. And we had no money. Yeah. So myself and Bono and Adam were listening from out on the street. And we were happy. We would, we just were delighted to just be in the proximity yeah. of the Ramones playing. So we're out in the street and uh, a friend arrives and he basically, someone had opened the uh, emergency exit. So for the last four songs, we snuck in for free and watched like four songs at the end of the show. Yeah. And it was so electrifying. It was so exciting. It was 
for us at that moment was just amazing and um, everything I had expected it to be. So we didn't see the whole show, but we, we caught the end of it yeah. and we caught the vibe. Yeah. yeah. And they were a huge influence. I love the idea of opening the exits as well, because that doesn't really happen anymore. And and when you yeah. know when I have a band first took off, um, you know we always used to let people in through the fire exits at the back, and it's like, come on, you know, it's like people couldn't afford to get in. It's a glorious thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they probably did it on purpose. Yeah, knowing them. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So miracle of Joey Ramone. Yeah, we met Joey, which is great because there's another connection with Joey Ramone, which is you'll find amusing. We had just started writing our own songs, so that would have been. Maybe, yeah, 78, around the time we saw the band and we're in Dublin and we're, we're in rehearsal. So it's a, probably a Wednesday afternoon. School normally finishes at lunchtime, but we're kind of staying on later to work on some songs. Yeah. And one of our uh, teachers, one of our few defenders in the school, because uh, there were some teachers who wanted to kick us out and some teachers who thought, you know, being in a rock and roll band was quite a legitimate use of school property. <laughs> and uh, so we were in rehearsal and one of those teachers came in and said, look, there's a guy from the national TV station who's who's looking for interesting things to put on this show called Young Line, which is really about teenage teenagers. Would you consider performing on TV? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> And so, okay, well, we'll bring him back in 10 minutes time. And if you just play him a few songs, you know, some of the stuff that you've been writing and, you know, if, if he likes the songs, he'll put you on TV. So we're like, amazing. So then we have a, like a, a 10 minute row about what uh, songs we're going to play. And that literally the guy is starting to walk down the corridor. We still haven't decided what song it is. So... I'm not saying who, but one of the bands says, let's play Glad to See You Go. So we played the Ramones, Glad to See You Go, and actually played it really well, Brilliant. considering we were no hopers at that point as as, as musicians. And uh, at the end of it, he goes, wow, that's really good. And that's one of yours. And we all nodded. Mm? Yeah. And, yeah. And ended up getting the gig on, on RCE. Where by then, like we had like another six weeks, so we actually performed our own songs when we got on TV. But um, I mean, it probably was more like a confidence than anything in our own material. But we told Joey Ramone this story and he cracked up. He loved it. that He had actually been instrumental in getting you two on TV for the first time. Wow, that's so cool. Originally from Songs of Innocence, that was Miracle of Joey Ramone on Absolute Radio. Tim Burgess here, having a listening party with The Edge. Edge, I'm about to play a still from what I'm looking for, from the Joshua Tree, because I heard a rumour that you were struggling to do the track listing for Joshua Tree, and uh, <laughs> like m- many bands do, or certain disagreements. And Kirsty McCall, who was in the studio mm. with Steve Lillywhite, and, and said that she'd have a go at doing it, and... She chose the track listing. Is that is there any truth in that? 
No, it's absolutely true. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> what happened was, as usual, the YouTube project was down to the wire, and we, you yeah. know, there's another band coming in like in a few hours, and we hadn't done the track listing, so we're like, "How are we going to do it? We've no time." And Kirsty says, "It's easy. I know what it is. I, I know what in my head it is." So we said, "Okay, Kirsty, you you do one, and we'll come <laughs> back in and we'll check it out and see see if we like it." So she just did the running order and we came back in we played it back and we we're like oh oh my god that's perfect wow that's amazing so we just went with her running order and we asked her afterwards said well what how what was the methodology like said oh i just put my favorite song first my second favorite second my third favorite third and she just went through the and then you know it's like as often happens even with the most random of creative processes, you can see all these sort of important thematic ideas that are contained within the running order and like the the end suite, the sort of death suite at the end. Yeah, and all yeah, this. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is true that, that those thematic um, things are there, but they're completely kind of irrelevant in some ways to the process of putting the album together. It was... It was based purely on instinct and what song was Kirsty's favorite and what one felt right next so that's I love that I love that um, story and, and story. that's yeah. how I heard it as well and um, yeah so not wanted to spill the beans but it was Johnny Marr who told me that story <laughs> Johnny. sorry Johnny, I uh, love but, Johnny. Uh, the reason why I'm saying that is that because charlatans have had terrible times in, in in organizing their tracks and he's actually taken our albums away and sort of like done running orders for us and Generally, get some pretty right. Yeah, channeling the spirit of Kirsty. Uh, objectivity is often the thing that's in short supply when you're, particularly at the end of an album, where you're so steeped in it, you're so wrapped up in it that it's it's very hard to see the wood for the trees. Well, let's hear it. I still haven't found what I'm looking for from the Joshua Tree. This is the version from Songs of Innocence. That was a still haven't found what I'm looking for. Reworked for U2's brand new album, Songs of Innocence. Edge, I can't have you on the show without telling you this. I have um, a story actually about receiving a phone call from you uh, when I was in Rockfield Studios. We were working with Flood. And uh, right. and the phone call was, uh, it's like, um, hi, it's um, Edge. Uh, it's like, okay. And uh, I need to speak to Flood. So I had to run into the studio and, you know, I didn't pass him the phone. I had to kind of like, dial it through and it was... You were about to tell him that Acton Baby had gone to number one in America and it was number one in, in the UK as well, which, of course, he was... Well, we were all thrilled. But uh, that's that's my that's my story. <laughs> no, that's my edge story. Sticking with Acton Baby, I'd just like to say The Fly, absolute banger. Um, this version, again, I absolutely love it. Can you tell me about the process of this one? Because, I mean, it's so driven, you know, such a driving song and it's like such a gorgeous, mm. you know reinterpretation definitely well I mean The Fly is would be one of those songs that I would have to thank the Charlatans for the influence and Stone Roses oh, and Happy Mondays definitely pleasure. that and it's the least um, we can do 
Yeah, no, I mean, really, you guys, it was like a throwdown in terms of groove and rhythm, what you were, you were doing. And The Fly would have been our kind of response to that throwdown. And so in this case, the first version I did was acoustic guitar and doing the guitar parts and then Adam playing the bass. And it did sound way too like a kind of cover version. So right. I decided, I think Bono actually threw the idea to me and said, what, what about you take the guitar and play it on bass? So I, I, I took the bass and threw out the guitar and it ended up being me and Adam sort of dueling basses. And the part I came up with was, was different because it didn't make any sense to do the guitar part. So it's a different counterpoint to the, to the bass, but it retains the same essence, which is, which is this sort of sexy, cool groove but in this case, it's gone much more kind of late night, yeah. uh, sleazy. It's almost like a Tom Waits um, yeah. kind of groove. You know, as as often happens when you're working on music, it's like the song is the boss and it's like it tells you what to do. So as we're working, you know, little, little pieces start to come together. And so the arrangement was really an experimental yeah. approach that sort of started to really become something. So we, we followed the clues and uh, got to this rather smoky, strange, late-night arrangement. I mean, not this song in particular, but did you kind of like, you know, songs that were in major keys, did you turn to minor keys and things like that? Well, in, in a lot of cases, um, we wrote new sections. Right. Or, okay. I mean, in case of, say, If God Will Send His Angels... The chordal patterns within that song were very simple and and they didn't really, they weren't particularly strongly expressed because it was quite an abstract sort of bass and drums driven arrangement. So sitting down at the piano quite quickly, I realized, oh, this these chords don't really support the melody very well. So I just completely changed chordal patterns under certain sections and introduced few kind of unusual chords yeah And I think it's uh, as a pure song. I think it works a lot better than than the original. And then with pride, you know, I got to the middle section, which would normally be the guitar solo. And it's like, well, there's no real call for a guitar solo on the acoustic version. So, what am I going to do? So, just wrote a new section. One more in the name of love. new chords, new motifs, just to kind of add the the intrigue to get us to the third verse. 
Yes. And again, you're like, it's an opportunity as much as it is um, a, a problem to solve. And, you know, tried not to make any of this feel like hard work. It was always Effortless. a sort of fun, joyful, playful experience. And I think if I've learned anything over the years, that's the, the trick with music is if it becomes professional mm-hmm. and workmanlike, yeah, yeah. you know, the music's going to have that yeah. um, quality and characteristic and that's very unattractive. I think if you can keep it playful and experimental and um, joyful, that's what you get from the music. That's a personal favourite of mine, Fly, on Tim's listening party. Tim Burgess here, still with The Edge, going through U2's new album, Songs of Surrender. After 50 years together with Bono, Adam and Larry, do you always write together as a band? Well, it's changed over the years. Early on, like a lot of bands, I think we would get in the rehearsal and just start jamming. And occasionally something would happen and then we'd record it on literally on a cassette machine (laughs) and go back in and start trying to piece something together and that works for a while because i guess we were in rehearsal a lot and these days and really since i would guess the big shift happened around um the joshua tree i would tend to work alone initially try and get some music going that's i thought was inspiring and, and and had possibilities and then bring it in and would kick kick around these ideas and then more recently i realized that you know even that's a little um wasteful time wise so i'm trying these days to really flesh out finished song ideas even if the top line melodies are placeholders yeah in in many cases just so that everyone can understand you know what the potential is and so you're not wasting everyone's time because jamming is fun but then when it becomes serious, you know, it, it loses its fun aspect and it just becomes at, at times a bit frustrating yeah. for people. And there's many occasions in the past where we've had like these screaming matches because a piece of music is something that's almost working out, but not quite. And then sometimes we'll get surprised and it'll turn into a song like Red Hill Mining Town and we'll kind of be happy went, went through the pain but um, we, we try these days to, to use our time wisely Do placeholders ever become the real thing? Yeah, yeah. often yeah. And or you know I'll sing Bono a melody idea and he'll say well I like that Yeah. what about this? Yeah 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 yeah. that's good collaboration so yeah that, like All I Want Is You was one Sunday Bloody Sunday where the, the melody's not the final one but it's like it's basically the the bits bits of the original get used in the final melody. With or without you, I mean, you know, it's such a special song. How do you rework a classic? Well, I think the most difficult were some of the biggest songs for lots of different reasons, some technical, some just the knowledge that the original meant so much to people. And with or without you was actually quite tricky in, in a sort of technical sense because the chord progression is the same throughout. So 
again you don't have chordal shifts to add intrigue it's it's like you've got to find other ways to to reel it in so um i i, I sort of broke the chord progression a couple of times yeah. sort of hanging back not completing it and that even that little small hiatus helped but um i constantly came back to the same thing like, what is the song telling us to do how do we serve the voice and the, and, and the lyric yeah and um in this case i think there's only one or two songs that involve a synthetic synthesizer you know instruments and this was one of them and it took a few goes and some of our co-creators duncan uh, stewart was was instrumental in getting this one over the line wow. and yeah it's really I, i'm very proud of how it turned out but it, it was again serving the song we would know when it wasn't right and then we would just follow the clues to find out what would work and it it, it took a couple of goes That was With or Without You, a U2 classic reworked. I have a few friends from Liverpool who saw you in Eric's and they've got tickets to see you in Vegas. Mm. You know, what do you think about like fans who've been with you for so long? And it's amazing, right? Amazing. I mean, early, early on, I'm sure like the Charlatans, we we knew our fans. Yeah. I mean, we we had like friendships with our, with our early fans and they would come sleep on the floor of our of our hotel rooms often if if they were stuck you know yeah and they we, want we, from you what what you want to put out as well you know and, and yeah. everyone wants the same thing right yeah and our fans still are incredibly important to us and these days we can't have them sleeping on our hotel room <laughs> floors but um we we would if we could yeah so yeah um it's it's just huge for us and i mean doing this run of shows in Vegas it's actually not going to be that many shows because right. it's such a big venue and I, I realized people are getting hung up on the Vegas thing but actually it's the venue itself is the attraction for us so if this venue had been in New York or LA or Tokyo or Timbuktu oh it doesn't matter right? we'd be there yeah. you know because it's such a unique facility it's it's a purpose-built entertainment venue it's the largest spherical building on earth uh and it's it's now the exterior is finished um it's 10 stories high and inside it it's 20,000 people um and the interior visual thing the screen itself is like 120,000 square foot of led screens that are incredibly high res so the opportunity there for you too is to do what we do but but also immersive cinema is what it's really designed for and it's going to be i think I don't think there's anything out there like it. It's light years ahead of anything else. So in U2 style, we, we love the idea of getting to do something for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we, we fell in love with that thought. F from our fans' point of view, yeah. I mean, it's, it means traveling, which, you know, is is not ideal. But it doesn't mean we're giving up on touring. No. We will be touring. But this particular opportunity and this particular thing that we're putting together for the spear in Vegas is it's a unique 
presentation, and we decided to focus it on Acting Baby as an album. Speaking of you two live, this next song, I can't help but listen to it and think of you guys playing at Live Aid. This is the Songs of Surrender version of Sunday Bloody Sunday. I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes, make it go away. How long, how long must we sing this song? How long, how long? Cause tonight. Sunday Bloody Sunday by you two, and I'm sad to say we're nearly at the end of this listening party on Absolute Radio. Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure going through Songs of Surrender with you. So I want to end up on track number 40, and it's called 40. I'm obsessed by album closers, mm. um, so much so that I'm going to be writing a book uh, about album closers. And this has been a closer twice now, this mm. track. I mean, what makes an album closer for you? Um, is there, you know, discussions and arguments and all that kind of stuff? And, you know, do some members of the band get two votes? And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, how does it work? Well, I'm, I mean, it's a bit like Kirsty doing the running order for Joshua Tree. It's like, it's an instinctive thing, I suppose. And... In the case of 40, which would, was the end track on the War album, we'd run out of time, which is a classic U2 thing. The next band were coming in literally in the morning. We'd worked, we'd done an all-nighter. So yeah, like, you went all there, right? Is that right? Four in the morning, I think. We we, we said, okay, now we have to get this last track. <laughs> what are we going to do? So I think myself and Larry just went out. So I was on bass, Larry was on drums. I, mean, I, I had this bass part idea, so I just started playing the bass part to 40. And then I think the jam, I took it somewhere else, and it was like about a six-minute jam, really. And so I went back in, and everyone was like, well, that bit's really good, but this bit is just not working. So Steve Lillywhite, the ever-practical and optimistic guy, said, okay, that's fine, I will just chop it out. Mm-hmm. So literally took the multi-track and a razor blade. Yeah, I love, I love those days. These bits that weren't working and glued it all together. I went, wow, it's cool. It's great. Bono, what are you going to do on this? So Bono went out and um, started riffing m- melodic ideas over this piece of music. And of course, we've no lyrics. It's like, so in literally... A few hours were like Bono's in there. What does that sound like? I'm singing, and the how long I think to sing the song yeah. was was done on on the first take. So then we're looking at and Bono says, "Okay, let's what's what's your favorite Sam? Let's steal stuff from the Bible. That'll work." So found Sam forty and starts taking little lines here and there, um, and it had to be done so quick that to us it was like this piece of music's telling us what to do what, what we just have to follow its lead yeah. which we did on did the vocal with these lines and uh, played a bit of guitar on top mixed it and left the studio and it was like a few days later we're listening going whoa so that turned out to be something interesting so it's very very spontaneous is what the original was but it it's weird how in those moments of where you really have no time to think that you can sometimes channel something very powerful. 
And we talk about like great songs are sort of there. You pluck them out of the the collective consciousness. And if you if you do, often it's the challenge is to keep your fingerprints off it. You know, it's yeah. literally just let it be what it is. And I think that was one of these. It's a great way of looking um, at it. Instances. Yeah. Edge, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, Tim, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so Great much. chatting. Thank you. Brilliant album, and I really love it. Looking forward to playing some of it live yeah. and talking to people about it because, I mean, it really started out being a, a sort of fan-orientated thing. We were doing it for ourselves. Uh-huh. We were doing it for, for YouTube fans. We weren't really thinking necessarily about, you know, breaking into the charts or whatever. But I think the as a labor of love, I think it has a certain tone that I think people are relating to which yeah. is really lovely to see it's a fascinating insight, thanks so much thanks Tim I waited patiently for the Lord inclined and heard my cry he lifted me up out of the pit out of the miry clay I will sing sing a new song I will sing a big thanks to The Edge for joining me on this episode of Tim's Listening Party. Their new album, Songs of Surrender, came out on March 17th, so make sure you give it a listen. Just like every episode of My Listening Party, I want to let you know what I've been listening to this past week. So what have I been listening to this week? Um, Aoife Nessa Francis, keeping with the Irish connection. Um, her album, Protector, is um, it's never too far away from my, my turntable. I've been a big fan for a long time and uh, well she's only done two albums but I mean that's quite a long time in pop so uh, that's a great recommend um, I've also been listening to Certain Ratio um, they've been like I've been fans of them for a long time and you know now and again I just pull the record out and the album I've been listening to this week is Two Each I've also been listening to Ruichi Sakamoto um, uh, Sad News that he passed away this week an amazing artist um, been mostly listening to Left Hand Dream, but um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence has been getting a spin as well. I've been listening to Sophie Royer, uh, her new album Harley Quinn is um, just fantastic, so I'd recommend that too. Although tonight's listening party is over, you can still get involved, so don't forget to tweet me your thoughts using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party. I'm Tim Burgess, and thanks for listening. I'll see you next time for another listening party. Every song in this episode of My Listening Party was taken from U2's Songs of Surrender. The lyrics were written by Bono and The Edge, with the music composed by Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. of U2. The credits reflect the re-recorded versions of the songs, not the original. The album was released on the labels Island and Interscope. See you next time. Absolute Radio. Telling the story behind another iconic album with Tim Burgess. Get involved using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party.